This is the What Now Podcast. I've gotten questions on why I only have two kids. And I'm like, if you only knew, I have pulled my hair out trying to have these two children. I'm like, and there's nothing left. I've tried everything. When I had Hardy, he was our very last embryo. And I couldn't make any more. I tried, but I was too old at that point. So it was our last shot. And I remember it was all fasting. And it took, but like, I literally could not have more children. So this was it. But there is a stigma with a smaller family, like, why aren't you having more kids? And you know what? It's totally fine. <laughs> it's okay if that's your plan or that's like the plan you feel is best for you and your family. I definitely can see, when I was younger, I thought I'd have all these kids and I can see how Heavenly Father's plan for me was better than my own and how I appreciate, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have more children, but I appreciate the special blessings that come from having a small family. This is the What Now Podcast, where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Adrienne Blacker about her 14-year harrowing journey with infertility. She talks about the highs and lows of trying to meet a cultural expectation when her body was unable to conceive and how she navigated the traumatic setbacks faced during her relentless effort to conceive. Adrian shares what she wished she had known and what she would have done differently. She also shares how to react to insensitive comments about having children when your desire to conceive is questioned and how her faith carried her forward to an unforeseen miracle. Today, I'm here with Adrian Blacker. Welcome. Hi, Mary Alice. How are you? So good. I'm so glad you're on the podcast today. Thank you for asking. Well, before we get started, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself so listeners can get to know you better? I'd love to. My name's Adrian Hardy Blacker. I currently live in Arizona in Paradise Valley area, Scottsdale area. Grew up in Washington, D.C. near Mary Alice, <laughs> who babysat me once. I was there for all my growing up years and then went to BYU, met my husband. Then we were in North Carolina for about 18 years and then we moved here and I started flipping homes and doing things that turned into me having a home staging business here in Arizona that I run and I've had a lot of experience with different things. You are a very talented designer. You're very kind. It's my passion. I know. And it's good to do your passion because then it doesn't feel as much like work. It doesn't feel like work at all. I feel like it's a privilege and like I don't go to work every day. It's just like fun. It's great. Isn't that incredible? What a blessing to have something in your life like that. It's so great. Well, it's really interesting. Like what we're talking about today, kind of, I know I have some thoughts about what I do for a living based on what we're talking about today too. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about facing infertility. So and within our culture wrapped inside of that, you know, having a large posterity is a really important part of our church culture. So for those facing infertility or other challenges with having children, it can be hard to meet that expectation. But how did you navigate that when you were facing infertility? My husband and I got married in 1999 and I was young. I was like 21 and he was 24. I just kind of went into the process of having kids, even though my sister had struggled a little bit and my mom had had a period of struggle kind of naively and just thought everything, it would just happen. You know, I met a returned missionary. He's a great guy. I graduated from college, like all these things. It just wasn't happening. And then a year turned to two, two turned to three, and then eventually three turned to 14 years of unable to have children. And it was absolutely the most isolating and most confusing time of my life because like you said, I had it in my brain that in our culture, 
that is the most important thing I can do is bring children to this earth. And I was not able to do it. It was very confusing, frustrating, and lonely time for me. I bet it is. I mean, because the expectation, you had the desire to jump in and do that. You wanted to do that. And then when it doesn't manifest, then you start getting questions about it. Oh, yeah. Your podcast is so perfectly titled because I kind of felt like that. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I really kind of like, But my whole identity was planned around being a mother. And here I am in my 30s and I'm not a mother. And I got married when I was 20. You know, I'm like, okay, so what now? And where do I fit? And I felt awkward at church because people thought I was really young and I'm like in my 30s. And I'm like, no, I haven't had children yet. And I didn't really feel like I fit anywhere or that sometimes I felt even at times that like talks or lessons didn't relate to me because I didn't have a family yet. And that could feel, again, very isolating. Oh, totally. I mean, how can members be more sensitive to those that might struggle with infertility and don't want to be open about their challenges? It's kind of a private issue. It's totally a private issue. And I've had an experience or two where people have asked me questions that were uncomfortable and awkward. I think we just all as members of this church need to recognize that Everyone is going through something and we just cannot have any idea what they're going through. And I think one of the lessons I took from those 14 years of infertility was to have compassion for people who suffer, but also to have compassion for the fact that I don't understand what's going on in other people's lives privately. And it's so easy to just assume and just think this is the path we're supposed to lead, but not everybody is going to go on the same road in the same way. And that's okay. We had kids when we were later. So I was 36 by the time we had our first child. And I had to have both my children be a surrogate. We finally figured out I wasn't able to carry after 14 years. So there's just, you just have no idea what's going on in people's lives. And we should just assume that everyone's doing their best, I think. Did you feel judged or criticized because of your delay in having children? Totally. I don't know how much of that was really true or just in my head. I felt judged. I felt not good enough. I felt embarrassed in a way, like what was wrong with me? Um, Very frustrated. And I felt like people thought, oh, she must just not be having kids because we're trying to get through graduate school or we're waiting till the right time. And are we being selfish or these sorts of things that came up? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm doing everything I possibly can. And I can see now looking back, what a, not what a blessing, but like, why it was the way it was. And I can understand the Lord's plan for me. It was really hard at the time, right, Alice, though, to to understand and to see. Um, but it was very special time, too. It's kind of a weird time of my life where it was very isolating and very lonely, but also a very strong part of my marriage. How was it a strong part of your marriage? Let's talk about that. Basically, we got married. And then within a year of being married, we graduated from college and moved to North Carolina by ourselves while Jared went to graduate school for seven years. And while there, I was, I'm sure other women who have dealt with infertility, I started trying to have kids right when we got there. And I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so depressed. I couldn't go get a job because I kept thinking, well, I'm going to have get pregnant. So I can't go get a job. I can't do this. I can't do that because of this. And I kind of was stuck in this place of sadness and frustration. But during that time, Jared and I became absolute best friends. So we really luckily turned to each other as opposed to turning to others or away from each other. We turned towards each other and we became absolute best friends. And that is something that keeps us strong to this day. 
we kind of laughed that we were empty nesters before we had kids. Because <laughs> we were like in our late 30s when we had our children. We had all those years together to build a relationship that some couples don't have a chance to because frankly, kids just take up so much of your energy and your time. There are some bonuses to having that extra time for your marriage to develop. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Because a lot of people, they have kids within the first couple of years. Totally. Yeah. And it just kind of like that becomes your story and you're talking and you're everything. When we just had each other, it's because we look towards each other for solutions and for for compassion and all that, that can be a real positive part of infertility, if there is a positive part. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, how should someone respond when a person makes an insensitive remark about having children? Because I think some people innocently are like, oh, when are you having kids? Trying to be supportive in a way. Like, like what's the best response for that? What I found sometimes, I'll be totally honest, I wanted to be like rude and be like, you don't know what's going on. But Honestly, I would just say it's just not in Lord's plan for me right now. And that communicates everything you need to communicate and you don't need to elaborate. You don't even need to say that, honestly, is nobody's business. But I think what I've learned looking back is for anyone who's going through infertility and gets those questions, honestly, that's coming from a really good place in them. And they mean it so well-meaningly, but it's so hard. You're so tender and raw, like an open wound during that time where you're trying so hard to make something happen that feels right and good, that's not working out, that everything is very sensitive and very tender. A well-meaning question like, when are you going to have kids? Or when is it happening? Or what are you guys doing? Can be very painful, but it's not intended to be. Yeah, and I think most of the time it isn't intended to be. I mean, people are just trying to be supportive and like interested in you, and that yeah, and like make conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is part of our culture. It's the path that we go on, right? And so there's that expectation that's the next thing that happens, and when it doesn't happen and it's not happening, it's strain. It is a now what situation. It was kind of like, you know, kids graduate high school. The first thing people say, so when are you going on your mission? Like this expectation of timing, you know, the timing, especially when you're facing infertility is totally out of your control. Which makes it like, I think a really interesting trial because I think some trials we could have some control over it, but like literally this was a trial that I literally could do nothing about. I mean, I had to go to another woman to carry my child. (laughs) Like I literally had no power to do anything about it. But that was so good about the trial because it made me absolutely fall to my knees and feel like, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what more I can do, but I want to trust your plan. And so it was a beautiful thing, really, even though it was very hard. There's a talk by Elder Holland. He talks about Joseph Smith being in the um, the jail and it is so beautiful. And everyone has those moments where we feel like we're at our edge and our absolute end but it's there that we find our Lord and Savior. So I'm just so grateful that I had those experiences, even though at the time, like I'm being of people who are going through infertility right now and it doesn't feel good. There are reasons why it's happening and you are being strengthened. It's true. I mean, I've kind of seen that in my own life. It feels like when I'm in the 11th hour and I'm in my breaking point is when the miracle kind of happens. Yeah. I actually have a memory of Jared and I, during that 14 years, we didn't have kids. We tried to adopt a few times as well. And we had one adoption where we were in the hospital with the birth mother and she had given birth to the baby and signed the papers and everything, but the birth father would not sign the papers. And so we had this woman that didn't want a parent and this child 
and a father that was trying to control the mother in a way, you know, not signing the papers. So we got that close to having a baby and had to walk away. And I remember going to the hotel. I remember we were like at a courtyard Marriott that night, just crying and just how awfully painful that was that we were so close. I held her, we named her and then it was taken away. But then the funny thing is that that awful moment, we woke up the next morning and literally we looked at each other and we just started laughing because it was so bad. <laughs> we're like, it's gotten so bad that it's almost funny. I know that's a weird story, but it's kind of an explanation of a lot of things about how you can, you can find in your absolute most painful moments, the good or get closer to your spouse or, I don't know, still feel the savior in your life. Oh, that's interesting. That is painful. I mean, I just have named and held the child, the paperwork's done, and then you're emotionally invested. Yeah, I remember I brought the, like, it was in a, a different state. So I had brought clothes and like a, a car seat and everything. And I just left it all at the hospital and left. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is heartbreaking. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. I literally felt like I had a broken heart. You know, the funny thing is I went in on to do surrogacy. That was a couple of years later. That was probably five years after that I got into surrogacy. But I was so affected by that experience that when I did surrogacy, I even was like, now this lady's not going to want my baby, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's your baby. Yeah. I was like, this is genetically my child. And I'm like, it scared me. But surrogacy was absolutely fascinating. These women had no desire to have these babies. <laughs> They are 100% in it for helping you and like bringing children into the world to help do something you cannot do. And it's totally a selfless act. But I was so scarred from that experience that I was kind of like panicked, even at the hospital when Evelyn was born, kind of like no one can take her away, right? I mean, it was really, really hard. That would be so hard, especially because of your prior experience. Yes. I remember when she was born, my surrogate was very dark hair. Her husband had very dark hair and Evelyn came out with flaming red hair. <laughs> and I was like, that's my child. Oh my goodness. Hardy. Yeah, that's a hardy. Kayla's <laughs> can be with red hair. I'm like, oh my goodness, bless the Lord. That's really my child. <laughs> so it was really cool. I was really grateful. Hardy looked so much different. So I was really grateful Evelyn came first and she looked so hardy. So I was like, there we go. Isn't that amazing, actually? Yeah. Think about it. Like the person caring has none of your characteristics and the child is born with your genetics. Yeah. It's like totally a different person. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It was a really neat experience. And both moms, for anyone who's considering surrogacy, both birth mother, well, not birth mothers, we call them, but carriers, had just absolute love for me and wanted to serve me. And it was not about them wanting the baby or anything like that. They just wanted to help me. It was a really beautiful experience. So are these women, these carriers, do they have children of their own already? Yeah. So the agency I use requires that you've already had your own children. Not you have to be done, but that you've had a child. So they kind of like, they go through a, not a security, but like a psychological process where they've, they've vetted them. Most of them should be married, have stable incomes have had children before. This is not going to be their first child they've ever had. So they have experience being pregnant and having a baby and all that kind of stuff. So they're very well vetted. And I have had two very positive experiences with them. How did you make that difficult decision to do surrogacy? It was so incredibly difficult. <laughs> I remember when we reached about 13 years, my parents had run into a friend at church who had done it. 
and they mentioned it to me. There's a lot of history there where like my poor family and Jared's family, it can be so hard for the families. I think we don't think about that, that it's hard for the parent, like the grandparents that aren't having the grandkids or that see their kids hurting so much and want to solve the problem and yet, and help and don't know how. And I have such compassion for that now looking back, but it was sometimes it was hard for me because I'm like, oh, I'm doing the best I can. You know, I felt took it as pressure when really it was just love. And like, I just want to help you. My dad brought it up and I thought to myself, my first thing my husband and I thought was, isn't that like not in the handbook? Yeah. Yeah. And so we went and read the handbook and it was strongly discouraged. And I was like, well, why should we do something that's strongly discouraged? And we thought about it and we prayed about it. And my dad talked to us about it. And we have had a very strong experience that, that this was something we were supposed to do. It was so incredibly scary. I remember I was really study president at the time. Did I tell you or somebody that, oh, I told someone else that I remember thinking I'd been in for three years and I thought I'm never going to get released because I'm never going to have children. So they're just going to keep me here forever. (laughs) You're going to be trapped forever. I am the perfect person forever. (laughs) Forever release society president. I'm like, I've got to get pregnant. So anyway, it was an interesting time. I really found peace with it as I thought about it and as I learned and researched it and I talked to people who had experienced it, that I realized that it was going to be different than adoption and it was going to be my own children and that the Lord was comfortable with it. So I felt good about it. Yeah. And you really have to, for a decision like that, where it's not totally black and white, Yeah, many members feel like it isn't approved by the church. Yeah. You know, and several prominent members of our church have had children by surrogacy. Yes. We were in a little town in North Carolina at the time. And when Jared and I went to tell our bishop, it was like, he had to have a moment there where he was like, and Jared was in the bishopric at the time, you know, kind of like, what? (laughs) And there's a little explanation there of like, no, this is what happened and this is how it happens or whatever. But it's a little bit of a taboo, but it, a lot of people have done it. Well, I mean, if it's, not having children at all or growing your posterity, I would think the Lord would be pleased with the opportunity to have a child. A hundred percent. I think so too. It's truly an amazing experience. I mean, it seems like a last resort, right? It is a last, last resort. Absolutely. I got to the end where I had done everything I can when a doctor said, Adrian, there's just no way. I'd miscarried. I finally, so I finally was able to get pregnant with the doctor. And I miscarried six times. And by the time I was had the sixth miscarriage, there's something more to this than you just not being able to get pregnant. So they did some testing and found out I had a luteal phase defect, which means I can't hold on to the baby after a certain weeks. I don't have enough of a hormone that holds on to it. There's, they, they can't give me enough of it. So anyway, it was impossible. When I was at that place where I thought, okay, there's no way an adoption was so messy It's kind of like, well, maybe I need to entertain this possibility and this might be the only way. And it was so much, I had such a negative thought of it going in and it was so much more positive than I had anticipated. Yeah, it's interesting because my cousin's grandchild was born through surrogacy and we were at the baptism this summer in New Hampshire. Anyway, the surrogacy carrier was there. Like they have kept in touch with this woman and they've had three children with this woman and she is, or maybe two different carriers, but she was one of the carriers for these twins. Yeah. So I have totally in touch with both my carriers. In fact, one of them, Evelyn's carrier, they're not of them were LDS. 
her son was going to college here in Arizona. And so she was dropping off her freshman year. And so we all met up for dinner one night. And here's Evelyn with her carrier, you know, nine years later. <laughs> and just blonde, like gorgeous lady. And I'm just like, this is the lady that carried you, Evelyn. And she's kind of like mind blown. But yeah, we totally keep in touch with them. It's really been great. Yeah. So how do you introduce that to your child? We've always been open about it from the very beginning. We always say like, we made the right, we're the recipe. We made the cookies. We put you in a different oven. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to talk about it. <laughs> if your kids are young, that's perfect. Yeah, so like, so it's still like, we made the cookie dough, but someone else baked it for you and it's all good. I will say some advice for anyone who does consider surrogacy. One thing I found challenging more than even so telling my kids about it or anything was preparing yourself. You don't have the same experience of being pregnant and preparing yourself to have a baby. So you don't have this constant reminder that like I'm carrying this child. And so it was a little bit of a shock when Evelyn came because I was just my own self doing my own thing. And then I had a baby one day. So anyway, but the funny thing about my first surrogacy, I was so traumatized by my adoption problems and all my miscarriages. I did not tell my siblings that Evelyn was coming till the day before she was born. Wow. <laughs> I told my parents a few months before, but nobody knew until a day before she was born because I was so afraid sure. that she wouldn't make it. And then I'd have to put everyone through this whole emotional roller coaster again. And I felt bad. So I just kind of kept it to myself thinking, well, we'll see if it happens. Well, it totally happened. <laughs> but that makes sense, right? I mean, you're just trying to put off potential trauma. For yeah, because I'm always like, oh, else. telling people, oh, I miscarried. And it's this back and forth. And you feel kind of bad putting people through this experience over and over again. And it's hard for you. So like sometimes just being private about it helps. No, that makes sense. I mean, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah. You just want to make sure, okay, this time it is foolproof. When you have so many setbacks, oh. I'm like, hey, now she really can get out and be healthy now. Okay, I should probably tell people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was very traumatized. <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you were saying. I want to kind of go back to what you're saying about how like when you're pregnant, it is kind of preparing you. Yeah. You don't sleep as well like going to the bathroom 10 times a night because the baby's sitting on your bladder and you get trained almost to like not sleep. You do. And like you have it on your brain all the time and you're like feeling it and you're looking at it. But what, especially with surrogacy, you're often not in the same state. So it's not like you go and see them for the sex ultrasound or like you see them like when they do the infertility, the treatments in the very beginning, but it's not in your face all the time. So it's kind of an interesting experience to like, I wish I'd prepared better because it's, it's just like all of a sudden you have a baby. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that would be different. I mean, how did that alter your life? I mean, you're a working professional at this point. You've been. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. In fact, I, I say I was like, I was a bachelor and then I got married later in life. And I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was actually really challenging. I had a little postpartum depression, which was really shocking to me. I had wanted a baby for so long and it was the goal of my life. And I felt like it was the pinnacle of everything I was trying to achieve. And it was such an adjustment and so much that I struggled a little bit. And I was so embarrassed that I was struggling. I shouldn't have been, but I was. It was such an adjustment with no, like I felt not prepared. I think emotionally as well, because of all my hurt, I kind of didn't think about it. I didn't really prepare for it. I just kind of didn't get my mind in the right place. And so all of a sudden I was a mother and it was overwhelming. That quickly adjusted, but it was definitely interesting, I think. 
Yeah. Postpartum is real. I had that with Trevin. Yeah, it's real. Even if you don't give birth, it's real. And I think it can be triggered too by your overwhelmed, major changes. I mean, there are a lot of triggers for that. There are totally a lot of triggers. And it's just your whole, your sleep is off and your, your life that used to be a certain way is completely unrecognizable. But it's great. It's so special and so good in so many ways. It's just different. And it's amazing how we adjust. Yeah, it is amazing. You just kind of work with it. But I was thinking the other day, like how we adjust those changes. I sometimes wonder, like I found a really great career after my kids were born. So after my kids came is when I really started figuring out what to do with myself. So like once my youngest was three and I sometimes wonder, why did I spend all those years, like all those years, just sitting at home, waiting to have a baby, taking a little jobs, like not finding my passion and I totally had the, the thought, Adrian, if you had found your passion like you found right now, I probably wouldn't have pushed as hard and gone all the way to surrogacy. I probably would have been like, oh, I'll just, me and Jared are fine and I'll just work and whatever, we'll be fine. And I did all I could. But the fact that it was my total focus made me go all the way to the better end. <laughs> that totally makes sense. I mean, yeah, because you have a thriving career right now and you could have just said, fine, I'm doing great. I'm just going to go with this. Totally. And I think that would have been a temptation, but like it's my entire life was trying to have a baby for so long. And that's, that's what it needed to be, I think. And it's amazing that you persisted. I mean, was it cumulative 14 years from yeah, start? Yeah, it was about 13 and a half years. Yeah. That is a long time to keep pressing forward. It was a long time. I was like, really? I don't know. Again, there's so many compensating blessings. I think that we all can see when things go wrong that help you get through that moment or that year. And honestly, for me, it was my marriage to Jared that was just has always been the absolute comfort and greatest blessing in my life and continue to be, but was absolutely strengthened and the blessing I got out of that experience. Yeah. I mean, that is the takeaway. Like we do get blessings through major trials. Absolutely. And we not only do we get blessings, but we learn so much to be able to help other people. And I hope that's what I can do is that I can I can be sensitive to other people's trials and also be just understanding that everybody has their own path and it's not all going to be the same. We're not all going to go on a mission at the same time. We're not all going to serve in the same capacity and we're not going to have children. And like, it doesn't go that way. And that's totally okay with Heavenly Father. And that's okay with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Well, based on your experience, what encouragement or advice can you offer for those facing infertility or even those who just want a smaller family and don't want to feel shame and guilt about it. That's so interesting you brought that up. I've gotten questions on why I only have two kids. And I'm like, if you only knew, I have pulled my hair out trying to have these two children. I'm like, and there's nothing left. I've tried everything. We had hard. He was our very last embryo and I couldn't make any more. I tried, but I was too old at that point. So it was our last shot. And I remember it was all fasting and it took, but like, I literally could not have more children. So this was it. But there is a stigma with a smaller family, like, why aren't you having more kids? And you know what? It's totally fine. <laughs> it's okay if that's your plan or that's like the plan you feel is best for you and your family. I definitely can see when I was younger, I thought I'd have all these kids and I can see how Heavenly Father's plan for me was better than my own and how I appreciate. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have more children, but I appreciate the special blessings that come from having a small family. I totally agree. 
I mean, I chose to have two children. Yeah. And totally. I remember feeling very uncomfortable with that in the culture. Totally and judged. Yeah. Totally. And people are like, when are you having more kids? I'm like, I'm not. Not? <laughs> and it's okay. Good. And I would just always say my default to that kind of insensitive comment that came out of ignorance was kind of like, I will be a very good mother to two children, but I won't be a good mother to more than two children. And that's how I feel, Marielas. And that's what I've realized is like, I think I didn't know about myself that I'm so grateful that Heavenly Father's kind of made it that way is that this is kind of my most way to be successful and be the kind of mother I wanted to be. Not that you can't to lots of children, it's just harder. Yeah, I wanted to be totally present, totally engaged, totally committed. And I have a beautiful relationship with my children. I know. I love that. I hope I have the same thing. <laughs> oh, you will. And the thing is, on that note, though, I struggled. And I remember going to the temple because I was really struggling with this. Because the space, I mean, Emily and Trevin are two and a half years apart. And then it became four and five and six years. And yep. people like, well, if you're going to have another kid, you should probably do it soon. You're going to have a big break in your family. Like, they're getting so invested in my yes. <laughs> I'm like, stop. <laughs> so true. You're like, that's a lot of information. Okay. <laughs> No, so I remember going into the temple and I went every Friday. That was my thing in the Boston Temple. I remember sitting down in the little waiting area in the chapel and I was just really torn up about this. And this woman sat down, one of the temple workers, and she was familiar to me because she was there on Fridays. And she sat down next to me and I shared how I felt about this situation so randomly because I'm super private and I really don't do that. And then she just gave me the answer I needed to hear. Like, it's fine. If you feel like that's your max, then fine. <laughs> like, you don't have to, you know, you can seek revelation for your life and your posterity. I knew that in my heart, but having someone else validate that for me made all the difference. It is so validating. It is so fine. And I think that relates to so many things that you talk about on this podcast, that so many things that we do or we feel like aren't good enough or aren't enough or aren't the right, exactly what everyone else is doing is fine. And as long as you and Heavenly Father are on the same page and you feel connected to that, then good. You know, it's interesting because when I was making that very pivotal decision, I felt strongly I should not have more children. Yeah. And then you fast forward a few years and my daughter had a debilitating disease called endometriosis. We were going to children's hospital every week. I mean, she was doubled over, debilitated in chronic pain. It was horrific. So if you'd had other children, it would have been totally more difficult. Right. Like who would have taken care? Even Trevin was neglected. It consumed my life. Right. Like nine years. Yeah. And you just don't know. Yeah. And so, you know, the Lord probably knew, okay, you're going to have a major health trial come up with one of your kids and you need to be invested. So maybe you just you know, call the stops on these two. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is good. You know, and it's true. And that really did. And I thought back on that several times because I did feel very strongly I should only have these two children. And then you fast forward to what the support I had to offer my sweet daughter in this horrific journey we were both going through for her health and really to save her life in a lot of ways. It's so debilitating. It just robs you of your whole quality of life. I was able to go fly to Mayo Clinic and go to all these different doctors and really invest a ton of time in her treatment. And who knows if she would have gotten the right treatment if I'd had eight kids. 
And not that there's any diss on someone who has a big family at all. I'm not disrespecting that at all. And I think that's an amazing thing if that's their calling, but it wasn't my calling. So, um, and I think people can have peace and comfort in knowing they can seek revelation for their posterity. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye, we say what now. This has been a What Now podcast production. Thank you.